commercial property with Rethink Investing. Australia's largest and most comprehensive podcast covering all things commercial investing. Okay, everyone. How are you going? Phil Tarrant, uh, co-host of Inside Commercial Property with Rethink Investing and just listening to that intro there and uh, and it says uh, something lines and I'm paraphrase uh, the largest and most influential podcast for commercial property. I'm happy to report that it is. Uh, it's rocketing in the charts in iTunes and all the other players. So what we seem to be doing with this particular podcast is resonating and I think there's a big gap for it. And if you tuned into the episode number one, we are now episode number four, we gave a really good rationale into why we were doing this podcast and what sort of outcomes we expected from it. So I'd score us pretty well so far. I wouldn't give us 100%. So make sure you get in touch with us and let us know what you think or you'd like us to do more effectively uh, with this particular podcast. But we'll keep at it. We'll keep doing it. We'll keep growing it. We'll keep evolving it and getting some greater structure and greater sophistication into how we look at commercial property here in Australia. That's something that I'm passionate about, and I'm enjoying the journey personally, learning a lot more about it. I thought I was pretty versed in it, but it's become very clear chatting with my co-host, Scott O'Neill, who's director of Rethink Investing, that I know absolutely nothing. So it's nice to be reminded that when you think you've got a good handle on something, that you don't necessarily do it, and we can all be better informed. We can always learn. We can always be educated in these type of topics. So how you going, Scott? Good, mate. Yeah. Very good. What's been happening? Oh, just the same old, just working, finding properties for people, watching the news every night, seeing what disasters are unfolding and waiting for us the next day. But yeah. uh, then you get up and it's a good day most of the days. And yeah, everything's sort of uh, on the ground. Pretty positive, I think. And look, obviously, there's some uh, poor buggers locked away in Victoria and stuff like that. Mm. So we do talk to a lot of our Victorian clients and you know the mood is definitely different down there from every other part of the country at the moment. But, you know, the positive note is a lot of the guys down there are actually using the extra time to get their finances in order. And a lot of them can still work from home and that's obviously a positive. But, yeah, the world goes on. The world does go on and uh, it's a good point. Just because you're locked up doesn't mean you're mentally locked out. I'd be using this time if I was locked up uh, to really deep dive and doing those things that you always thought you were going to do, you never get around to for whatever reason. So this is your time to shine. So listening to this particular podcast on commercial property uh, it's probably a good start maybe give you a bit of motivation to, to go in the right direction but scott i was um looking at some numbers coming out of core logic recently so that's one of the big data houses that sort of reports on what's happening in property so a lot of people think it's possible to look at what's happening and they base the performance of property on whether or not price is going up or down and that's one way to measure property uh, it's largely a residential way to do it we're speaking commercial but residentially they're chatting about resilience in property markets i think it was a reduction of I don't know, 0.6% or something other for the June quarter. So that impacted by a couple of months of COVID. And some of the rhetoric I'm hearing is that if there was a vaccine, residential property would be rocketing along right now because all-time lowest interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a certain sense of resilience. I think regional markets actually increased in that period of time as well. What's happening in commercial? Is there still this level of resilience or is that more impacted by COVID because commercial typically means it's connected with a business? Yeah, we're seeing, like you said, that resilience. Interest rates have a major factor of keeping these prices moving a certain direction and interest rates are at their lowest level and businesses are using it to potentially buy their place they're renting in because uh, as an owner-occupier, you know you can change charge this, a certain rent to help your taxes do certain things. It's cheaper to purchase than rent in a lot of cases and investors are using cheap money to purchase property. Mm. And we find that... In times like this where there's less predictable growth ahead, people favour cash flow. 
you know, they favor security as well. So, yeah. you know, we mentioned the last podcast that people are putting their money into gold. And then I referred to industrial as almost like the gold of commercial because people are what to buy spaces that they see is going to be secure businesses in this time. And online businesses need space and manufacturing is coming online a bit more in Australia. There's medical assets, you know, things like pharmacies and, you know, dentists, GPs, any of that type of stuff is just going really well. Like, you know, we're buying a client property for a client at the moment, which is a dermatologist, and they've got a six-month waiting period for people to come in. They've been in the same property for 18 years, but on the surface, there's a near 7% net yield for the investor. Mm. So how does that not make sense? You actually don't even care about the growth. You've got really good cash flow. And that's where the resilience come from. So we're seeing there, I think it's just going to be good assets will keep growing in value because money's cheap. Poor ones that stay vacant will, you know, they'll flounder a bit. So before we get stuck into the podcast today, I just really, and we spoke about this at length on the first episode, which is sort of our foundation episode, having a good chat about why we're doing this. And and for many people, there's essentially two types of commercial investors. There's people that go out and buy multi-million, hundreds of million dollar commercial assets. And then there's people who operate in inverted commas, more mum and dad type commercial investments. So, you know, small factories, shops, small offices. So that's where we're framing this particular conversation. But at that point in time, when we spoke about that, we spoke that most commercial investors that operate in that area typically have a bit of a balance between some resi and some commercial stuff. So rethink investing just doesn't do commercial. That's the focus of this podcast, but you, yep. you're also strong on the residential side as well. Yeah. So every week we're buying numbers of residential properties still for our clients. So mm. what we target in that space is more your, you know, around that sort of cheaper end price points, because we like targeting markets where it's affordable for renters and owner occupiers. And we just focus on, you know, really tight vacancy rates, but you can pick up a bargain at the moment because there is distressed sales. There's a lot more in residential than commercial. Main reason for that is commercial investors tend to have larger deposits. They're more sophisticated. They've got bigger buffers in place. So they don't distress sell much unless it's a vacant property and it's a little cheap one and you know it's their only investment because you tend to sell off your lower yielding investments first because they're causing you headaches and it's harder to hold onto them. Mm. So we're finding there is a little bit more of the distress selling in residential and I guess that's what we target when we do buy. And the commercial side, we're just looking for real rock solid businesses that are not suffering from COVID related rent relief or they're not getting forced closed or, you know, that's the, it's almost a totally different thing, but I guess they complement each other in a way. Yeah. And this is about having more diversified portfolio. And on the resi stuff, I'll get you to come and have a chat with me on the Smart Property Investment Show. We dig into it, but uh, inside commercial property. Now, the last time we got together, we sort of broke down, broke apart the different asset classes in commercial, uh, office, retail, and uh, industrial. We said at that point in time, two things. We said that we'd do a deep dive into how the numbers work for each of these different asset classes. We touched on it, but we said we'd get stuck into the numbers. And the second thing we said, Scott, was that we'd get someone in the podcast to have a chat with us as well, and that's what we've done. So here in I introduce uh, Steve Polisi. He's a head property strategist uh, at Rethink Investing. Steve, how you going, mate? Not too bad, mate. So do you sort of sit in your office with a hat with a propeller on it? You do all that? <laughs> Are you the num- numbers guy or <laughs> how does all that work? Only when Scott makes me know. <laughs> so tell us about what you do at Rethink. All right, so I'm basically head of strategy. So any new clients that come on board, work out whether resi's right for them or commercial's right for them, work out what their goals are, risk profile, put pen to paper, make a plan, and then 
start going from there and then our acquisition team will take it from there and we'll put them into the right property. So you sit at the objective strategy end and then your team go away and do the actual tactical execution of it. So they fill in the gaps in terms of individual properties, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So they'll find the properties yep. and then I'll deliver the property to the client depending on what their needs are. Okay. And when you think of residential and commercial, what sort of balance would you have in your role? What do you buy the most of? At the moment, commercial, okay. about 70, 80% commercial. If you asked me two years ago, 80% residential, there's just a bit of a mind shift going towards commercial, but mm. it just depends on the client. If they're first-time investor, probably unlikely to push them into commercial, depending on what their deposit is. But again, it depends on personal circumstances. Yeah. And you talk about that mindset shift. And I think part of that is the nature of the market. I think part of it is greater education and sophistication of property investors. But I think part of the market also is that we're doing stuff like we're doing with uh, inside commercial property where we're actually talking about stuff. So it's in some ways the unknown bit of property investment. Everywhere you go in residential property, there's someone who's an expert on it and my recommendation, choose your advisors carefully. But there's a gap in commercial property, which we're trying to fill with this podcast, Scott. Do you think that's got anything to do with people maybe diversifying their thought around commercial property as an asset class? It's a good question. I think residential has been so good for so many people for mm. so many years. So there wasn't really a need to look you know, beyond your backyard in that department. So times are changing. Like The markets have been pretty average since 2017 in many markets. Like It's been flat and cash flow is not great. So people are, you know, licking their wounds on a lot of their investments and thinking, what next? And, you know, the share market is all over the shop at the moment. So it's hard to put large sums of money into that, like, you know, property related amounts into that. So commercial is, I think, a really good solution. It's just, it's harder to pull off. And that's the other reason there's not much marketing on it. Because if there were 200 people all doing the same thing, Yes, like I've mentioned before, the stock out there worth buying, it's so little. And that's that's our biggest problem out of business, how to keep finding the like amount we need. We've got more clients than the actual properties out there. So we actually have to give our uh, you know, clients timeframes and stuff like that because we don't want to get them into average quality properties. You want mm. the very best. So that's the main reason I guess people are moving towards this because of their higher cash flow. And yeah, it's about getting the right assets and that's where we're filling it in. So it's harder and therefore you need to make sure you've got the rigor to buy effectively and, and that there is the big thrust of today's discussion. Steve, so you sort of talk about the strategy of investing in commercial property and um, yeah, a lot of that strategy, it's akin to how you would operate in residential. You know, I guess three things, the outcome in investing effectively in residential, you get capital growth, you get good yield or you get both, right? Does the same apply in commercial lending? When you're looking at a scenario or a particular client, how do you go about framing up those type of strategies? It just comes down to exactly what they're trying to achieve. Mm. Because you've got a larger deposit, you've spoken about previously, the 30%, getting a young 22-year-old client who's got 60 grand in the pocket, not really worthwhile holding on to that to get a commercial, get into residential so you can maximize some of the leveraging. If you're someone, say, middle age and you've already got a residential portfolio already, but you're trying to get the cash flow so you can start stepping away from work, then a commercial might be an option. Or alternatively, if you're looking at your exit strategy, so you're near retirement and you want to boost your passive income, you can look at that and get into commercial. But it'll ultimately just come down to what time from you're working to and what cash flow you want to achieve. So when you break down the numbers and you know to get into a property is is often the hardest thing for most investors. So commercial property, no different. So what are the costs that you're going to have up front? Obviously, you spoke about a deposit. So that's a most commercial lending. But I hear you get some great commercial rates at even 80% these days, right? But you know, by and large, as a general rule, you think about sort of 70% 
So you need 30% of the deposit. So if it's a million dollar purchase, you need 300 grand. What are the costs? What are the purchasing costs there? Right. So similar to residential, you've mm. still got an approximately stamp duty, which is about 3.4%. Then you've got all the usual stuff like building pest inspection, legal fees. One cost that most people don't realize, you actually have to pay for the valuation. Okay. So the lenders will actually do a formal valuation, similar to what we do at Rethink, where you test like the risk in the market, what the tenant's strengths are, competition in the area, things like that. That you're looking between about 800 bucks to 1600 bucks. If it's multi-tenancy, it can be two grand to 20 grand kind of thing. But besides that, the process is the same. It's normally just, there's more moving parts to it, which is why most residential people stay away. Okay. And a lot of residential people will stay away from commercial property with this assumption that it's more expensive to get into a commercial property because the deposit is larger. Myth, fallacy, you know, how does that work? If I'm ponying up 30% instead of 20%, that means that I need a bigger chunk of cash to actually get started. But does that help speed along my investment? If it's the right asset, it will. But one pink point to note is just the cash flow on a commercial itself. So if you buy, say, a 7% yielding asset, within about 2.2 years, you'll get that extra 10% that you put into it anyway back. So as long as you've got a good time frame for your plan, you'll actually make that money back and you can accelerate it even further. Okay. So that's an important point. Because you are having a smaller loan, because the LVR is smaller, it means that your positive cash flow should be higher and therefore you pay down that 10% faster, essentially, is what you're talking about. Yeah, effectively. The, the, the gap. Okay. And is that something that is a like a light bulb moment for a lot of investors when they actually look at the numbers and work it out? Most people don't actually realize that stat. The light bulb moment for me was when I actually calculated if I put that cash flow back into the property on a 70% loan, on a 7% net yielding asset, you'll actually pay it off in nine and a half years. So getting a residential property, say you buy something in Sydney for a million dollars and it's cost you 10 grand a year just to hold the property you're banking on that property doubling to make the same amount of money without any positive cash flow on it. Commercial, while you keep the tenant, it's in the bank. And then in addition to that, hopefully the property's doubled as well. Okay. So you're getting the double whammy then, investing in commercial, Scott. Yeah. And that's one of the big myths out there that commercial doesn't grow. And mm. I'll tell you this year, the growth out of commercial compared to the residential stuff is, I'd say it's about double what we're seeing. Because commercial... It's very yield driven and there's a lot of yield compression going on at the moment. And I'm calling this as almost like the free kick for our investors because, yeah, you're getting a real good cash flow up front. But two years ago, we were buying in, say, Brisbane at 8.5% net yields. Those same properties could be sold back to the market on the same lease terms at 6.5 to 7. People are paying more for the same rent and it's because money is getting cheaper and that yield compression is not finished. So, we're talking 20, 30, 40% growth in some types of properties just from squeezing of the market. So that myth that is very common with many residential investors saying you don't get growth out of commercial, I don't know where it came from. Obviously, there's probably you're just focusing on the assets that didn't grow, the poor quality ones. I'm sure as people are trying to sell off the plan residential properties are probably creating yeah. that myth. Yeah, you know? like, but you could say you know, Gold Coast Apartments, how they've yeah. gone in the last 10 years. Well, there's different types of commercials as well. You can't compare the growth of a warehouse to a high-density office space. Mm. Or I'll tell you, like, you might buy a medical center that's a converted residential property. You can't say that's not going to have residential growth because it's a residential property as a bare bones. Yeah. So it's, it's going to come down to the type of property, its land component, the demand, what interest rates are doing, what infrastructure is going on in the area. So this, the same fundamentals apply. Complete tangent, but you were talking about dermatologists beforehand, which normally are around hospitals and they normally inhabit what were previously residential properties, right? Do you see many 
properties go from resi to commercial back to resi? Like, do, do people retrofit like you know dentist surgeries and dermatologists or other medical things? It's common back into res. Does it actually happen? Well, they get rezoned and they just put yeah. huge apartments on it. Well, it it does change. Like you've seen, like say Alexandria go from uh, commercial to residential. That's happening a lot more. Mm. But it depends on the numbers. So we find a lot of properties that are worth a lot more as commercial properties compared to being a poor quality residential. But then if the market improves, you know, gentrification, then it's worth more as a residential property. So you just got to almost just look at it through that lens, you Mm. know, what's worth more to the market at that point of time. But there's some markets we're targeting, like particularly industrial suburbs in certain parts of the country. We won't name where. Come on, tell us. No, we're there. (laughs) (laughs) But they're actually rezoning the fringes of it as it goes and they're basically turning it to uh so instead of pushing out this way so they start at the edges of industrial and start rezoning it back into resi yep and because okay. you know and if you could buy a big plot you know a thousand two thousand square meters of industrial land and just positively geared land bank it for the next 10 years and wait for that creep it's, it's could an be interesting good- strategy and we're gonna have a chat about growing a commercial portfolio maybe we can pick that up there but so rather than land banking like rural or acreage waiting for the urban sprawl to hit it, you're land banking industrial for reverse. Exactly. And it's large floor space. So that's why you can't land bank an office space because, you know, a million dollars mm. might only get you 100 square meters of office. Okay, let's park that. I want to go back to it. So it's largely relevant what the asset is for the sake of this particular conversation. We're talking about the mechanics of commercial property. So your purchasing costs, you spoke about deposit, you spoke about stamp duty, you got to pay for the valuation, higher LVRs. Therefore, you've got to put more cash in, but you can get that back faster. So this idea or concept around cash flow, Steve, cash flow as a rule is better in commercial property? Yes or no? Yes. Much, much better. Much better. Okay. So if I didn't know anything about commercial property, I would just go, why is that? So mainly the tenant pays the outgoings. So comparing a 7% yield with commercial is not the same as a 7% yield on residential, even though that's very difficult to get, like- what's Sydney, Melbourne at the moment, between 3 and 5% on average, because the tenants pay your outgoings. So they'll pay your council rates, your water rates, your bills, your maintenance. So you actually don't have any outgoings. If you get a property manager, you sometimes pay them, but the lease will determine who pays what. But I'd say 95% of the time, the tenant pays everything but the property management. So it's actually a 7% net yield, whereas the residential yields are gross yields because you still have all those outgoings. So you basically know what your cash return is from the get-go and you don't have to worry about anything else. You know at the end of the year, I've got this. And I think that's why most people are shifting to commercial because you actually know what your return is. Mm. So what are your holding costs then for a commercial property? Is it just the mortgage? Just the mortgage. Okay, plus if you've got to give some of that away to the uh, the manager to collect that yeah, rent. that's correct. Um, that, that's it? Yeah, a lot yeah. of people will manage it themselves because effectively your tenant just gives you the rent. So you give them a bank account, make sure they pay their rent on time, they mm. handle everything else. And if you want to do an inspection once or twice a year, you can do that. Uh, Scott, a question for you. What's the dynamics concerning people not paying their rent, commercial versus resi? I think resi, sometimes they pay their rent. Just, you know, you're punting them through a tribunal and stuff. Is it easier to do that in commercial than residential? Yeah, so, so at the start of the pandemic, there was a bit of um, – opportunist rent reduction requests but then legislation came in to and to state that you've got to show your financials and you've got to show an actual loss and that almost just nipped it completely off so mm. poor quality like businesses that were really struggling obviously are going to keep struggling but you've got to think of it this way a lease is a legal document to pay rent for an allotted period of time it's a legal agreement so if the tenant decides not to pay or they can't pay 
number one, there's bonds, personal guarantees or director guarantees in place. So there's protections there for the landlord. But it's a litigation process. And if a business stops paying, it's a big deal. Their whole business reputation's at stake. They're either out of business or they're in business. And if they're in business, they should be paying your rent. And otherwise, they're going to get sued, mm. essentially. And that's, um, you know, it's a fairly 50-50 scenario. Yeah, there's no tenancy tribunal. It's just lawyers together, bunning heads. And I think that's why I like it because, you know, you know, we all know as you know, residential investors that the tenant controls the situation. You know, it's very hard. There's actually even lobby groups out there at the moment telling tenants not to pay their rent because of COVID. So we're not seeing that in commercial mm-hmm. anymore. Okay, so there's more certainty around getting paid or at least yeah. there's a rigour around getting paid through through the regulatory or yeah. legislative process. Yeah. But you've got to do your due diligence and that's yeah. the, you know, above all else you have to buy well and like we look into the tenant, we want to know what their succession plan is, their competitor analysis. We've got to be very confident in the business itself and if you are, I'm very, very confident that they'll keep continue doing what they're meant to be doing because yeah. we know their business. That's an interesting point. So you're saying, and you mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, Scott, that when you acquire a, a commercial asset, you have a look at the business that operates out of that commercial asset and the underlying performance of that business to determine whether or not it makes a smart asset. I've rented commercial properties for years for the business and I've never ever once shown anything to a landlord in order to you know, rent a property and I would never do it. If someone said to me, well, this is getting sold, you need to, I go, nah, get yep. stuffed. You know. So how do you navigate that? So there's a few things. One, the internet tells a lot these days. Mm. You know, if you've got a lot of five-star Google reviews and, you know, and you've been operating for many years and we can see, and we actually do get bank statements from the landlord to show proof of payment. So we can go back five years and see if they've missed any payments. Mm. And if they've been doing that perfectly, I assume they're going to do the same for the new investor. So that gives it a lot of security. We call them up. You know, we just fight, you know, have a chat. Like we bought a vet the other day and I called up and spoke to a lady that was running the vet for 18 years. She was a little bit defensive, but I asked things like, oh, are you happy with the property? Is there any maintenance not done? Would you do any improvements? And I think once you come at them from a positive point of view, mm. they let their guard down and just realize you're not there just to take their rent. Because as a landlord, I want to make their life even better. You know, if I could fix the garden or, uh, you know, sort out something there or here, that's going to improve my chances of a smooth transition. Mm. So it's a lot more um, residential tenants is a lot more emotive than maybe what a commercial tenant is like. So you can be a lot more business-like with a commercial tenant where you can say, "What well, is that good? Is that bad? What can you do? What do you do? Which you normally wouldn't have that relationship with no. a resident. Tenant. And yet investors and business owners can be more relatable, mm. you know, because we're sort of doing the same thing. You know, they're there to make money through a business. We're there to make money through an investment. There's not the same resentment that you'll get through residential, I find. Mm. Okay, so going back to cash flow then on the commercial property, what Steve was saying is that the cash flow, the yields are better in commercial because the tenant pays most of the outgoings. And that's an interesting concept. If that's new to you, go and read up on it and uh, help you understand it. So what do most people do, Steve, with that positive cash flow? Ultimately, it's going to come down to what your goal is. Yeah. So most our clients are obviously want to grow their portfolio. So they're going to put it back into the portfolio, either new deposits for other properties or potentially pay down the debt. It's just going to come down to like what your strategy is over what time period. Mm. Some use it to live off. So some people just buy a couple little nest egg like warehouses, for instance, and then use it to travel. Others will use it to put their kids into private schools. It's a personal thing. 
Okay, so horses for courses, but most people are doing it to generate some sort of positive income that they can use for whatever they want to use it for. Yep, exactly. Okay, so what's the dynamics then? Because a lot of people invest in residential property on the basis that they'll hold it for 20 or 30 years and it'll double in value or triple in value, whatever it's going to do, and then they realise that increasing the capital value of it through selling it to free up some cash. Is that a strategy that works for commercial or do other people do other things? So if I actually reinvest the positive income through the cash flow into a commercial property, I can pay it down pretty quickly so it's unencumbered, right? So I don't have to worry about retiring the debt at a point in sale or selling some other asset. I can do it through cash flow. Yep, correct. So if you've just got the one, you might want to pay it off before. But if you're going to grow the portfolio, your end goal might just be have a five properties on a 50% LVR and then live off that. Alternatively, there's different strategies. You can sell some of the properties and then pay down all the debt, or you can keep the remaining debt and live off the income. Some might sell one of the properties and use the profit to actually live off. Some I've had a client who do uh, vendor finance, so they actually sell off the property, but the tenant actually takes on that debt and keeps paying them the passive income. So there's options like that as well. Okay, so is it possible to say, pay down a commercial property in like 10 years? Yep. So if you're buying generally like just some rough numbers, if you say you buy a, a property on a 7% net yield on even a 5% interest rate, you can pay that down in nine and a half years. Okay. Just by reinvesting yep. the, the extra reinvest- cash. Yes, yeah. And then the, even quicker, if you do some value add, get rental increases, yeah, cap rates or interest rates change, things like that. So how do most people actually affect that. So a lot of that's going to have to do with the type of debt you have against the property and whether it allows you to pay it down faster than the repayments. So can you have offset facilities when it comes to commercial? Do you got to actually pay the principal down? How do you pay the principal down? Similar residential, there's, yep. there's different types of loans. There's loans at principal plus interest, there's interest only ones, then there's the 15, 20, 25 year. There's ones based on the lease. So ultimately come down to it. But Generally, what I'd recommend is just put whatever funds you have in an offset account, which is the highest interest rate in your portfolio, because mm. that's going to make you the best net result. Okay. And then at a point in time, if you balance it out, say you've got 500 grand worth of debt and 500 grand worth of money in a, uh, an offset, you can either just pay it down, get rid of it, or just keep it like that. Yeah, exactly right. Keep. So ideally, you want to keep all your properties. If you've got a, an income-producing asset, mm. why, why would you get rid of it? Okay. Interesting. And do you think, Scott, the discussions you have with property investors, do they normally try and compare commercial to residential and try and apply the same principles uh, in terms of growing their portfolio? Do all the strategies that exist with residential also apply to commercial? Yeah, look, they do. But I've been finding there's a lot more people, once they do invest in commercial, they look at uh, selling off residential. That's been a, a real big change of 2020. Rather, like the whole mindset of hold forever actually changes when you compare apples with apples. Because if you hold a million dollars of commercial property versus a million dollars of residential, it's a whole different dynamic because of the cash flow difference. You know, you get to see it every month and it's a big, a very big difference. And residential is amazing and I love it. But when you're not getting your 5% plus growth per annum, it's very slow. And yeah. uh, commercial, it's almost a bit more of a, an instant hit when you see it every month. So. It, again, depends on the strategy. Like residential, you put less money down. Like Steve mentioned before, a lot of our younger investors with uh, smaller deposits, you have to go residential because you can stretch a $60,000 deposit into a freestanding property in, say, you know, outskirts suburb, and that will grow over time. And in time, you can leverage that into commercial. So you need a bit of both in summary. Mm. Yeah, and residential property has been a, a good asset class for us uh, over many years. And, you know, the speed of... Well, I look at our portfolio on Smart Property Investment, which I chat a lot about. We've 
built a good portfolio because we were in certain markets at a particular point in time when it saw significant growth. And so we were in the market at the point in time where those market forces took action, therefore, bam, you know, we see that growth, right? So does the same apply for commercial? So you speak about steady 5%, like a handful of markets residentially sort of grow at 5%. I think of Adelaide, for example, it's sort of, it doesn't burn hot or cold. It mm. just burns at a steady rate. You might get 5%, 5%, 5%, 5%. City markets, when we bought a lot of stuff, we're getting 10, 20, 30% sometimes, you know, just so we're in the market at the right time and we've got the growth. Does the same apply for commercial? Is commercial more like Adelaide or is commercial more like Sydney back in 2012? Oh, it is yeah. dynamic. It yeah. is like more like Sydney. So you look at the mm. office market, it's had an incredible run and it's going to have probably a very poor, you know, one, two, three years, who knows? But that will bring opportunity at the end of that. So we don't want to just all pile our money into industrial only, for instance, or only medical. You know, you do need to diversify within commercial. You know, different price points are important because you deal with different size businesses, different asset classes. You know, I personally own all three categories, you know, and so does Steve. Like you want to own a little bit of everything because at certain points of the time over the next decade or two, they're going to be flying and then others will be contracting. So when you've got your eggs spread out a little bit, over the long term, you're hedging your bets. So it means that when there is some sort of market forces, which is positive, at least you've got a bit of skin in that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and keep your buffers in place. And you know, you know, let's say retail is going a little bit worse at the moment, but a lot of retail has a little gone, bit worse. Aren't yeah. they shutting Westfields now, and people are moving <laughs> out? Like. There's some shockers out there. Yeah, but you got to remember, a lot of those properties, the current owners may have seen a triple in value, mm. and they've collected amazing cash flow nonstop, and. They're sitting on big cash reserves, so mm. they'll bide their time out. And a lot of, because we're buying property, we're dealing with the owners and they're so stubborn. And it's actually defies belief how stubborn they are sometimes because they don't care to sell quickly because they're wealthy. And, mm. uh, you know, they won't take the quick hit on the price. And they, you know, I remember while I was trying to lease a property out in Lara, you know, myself for our office, and we offered five grand below the market rent, you know, 5%, it was a mm. hundred grand rent. They said, no, that was their number. I went to the agent and said, you're kidding me. You know, what? They'd rather just let it sit vacant. It's been vacant for six months. And they said, yeah, that's just the family's number. They don't care. So there's a lot of that in commercial. There's just paid off. And uh, These are sort of family offices who, like, as in a family office, not an office for a family. Yeah. It's uh, just who, a- who just, that's, they're just private investors and that's what they do. Yeah. And that sort of does... I guess, stop the extreme variances in price. So Mm. you might see, let's say, you know, we'll keep using the office market example. That could have a bit of a instant hit because rentals are suffering at the moment, but, you know, it's backed by strong money. And, you know, there's, we've cheap interest rates around. I think that'll keep it sustainable and people are looking for those really, you know, 50% drops. They're just never going to happen. Same with residential. There's Mm. always another buyer looking for another There's no such thing as a quite 50% off the value, right? Like if that's the case, someone's got it before you have, right? Probably the real estate agent. But anyway. (laughs) So why, Steve, do different commercial asset classes grow at different ways or different rates? We spoke about offices, there's industrial and and there's like retail. Yeah, similar to what Scott said, it's just they come in swings and waves. So there's different drivers for each type of commercial. Like now that we're in COVID, obviously office spaces are going to have a bit of a hard run for a couple of years. But industrial, most areas are increasing because there's more shipping, there's more distribution, things like that. It's just demand on that type of tenancy. And that can come from just availability in the area, what the vacancy rates are doing, how much infrastructure is going in, how much spending, because some infrastructure brings business. So if you're buying something like industrial, 
the more infrastructure going on in an area is going to increase demand for that type of asset. The biggest one at the moment is lowering interest rates. Mm. So like if we bought something on a eight, nine percent yield two, three years ago, you get the same cash flow now on a six and a half percent just because interest rates are so much lower. But yeah, there's just so many moving parts. There's a little bit more of a delay with commercial as well. Residential, you feel the hit straight away. You can look at auction clearance rates and you see what's happening that weekend. But because there's long leases with commercial, it actually, there's a bit of a flow on it. It generally lags a couple of years behind the residential market. Mm. We spoke about sort of growth factors, Scott. I just want to touch on, you made reference to it. So this is the reverse change in zoning from industrial to residential, so urban infill. So is a lot of that happening on? Is like a lot of, is that happening a lot and how many people are on this because i reckon there's if you can pick up commercial space relatively cheap right now on a 10-year plan yeah it doesn't happen much but if you actually look at sort of where industrial suburbs are in decent areas Mm. so you know everyone knows an industrial suburb surrounded by residential and it just there's a certain point where uh, it's worth more either side of the equation whether it's industrial or residential so you know we're seeing a bit of that in certain places around the country not they're very little pockets. Like I'm not talking this is a regular thing, but you know you can see where they've rezoned a certain block. You know they applied for it and they got it through, and instantly you think, oh, that's pretty cool. So does that normally happen? And I think quite visually, I grew up around Blacktown Way, and I delivered pizzas for many years when I was at university around Blacktown. I think of the industrial area around Abbott Road in Seven Hills, huge with old Transfield and all that sort of stuff. So I've got a property around the corner. Oh, have you? <laughs> so just taking that as a case study, right? Do people buy the commercial property and then take it down the process to get rezoned or it's already been slated as being rezoned and then you acquire it then? How does that work? Look at, say, what Harry Trugerboth does. Mm. You know, you buy, you know, what was the latest one he did? It was near East Guns, the big, um, it was a massive industrial site. One of those types of large uh, industrial type setups and they've put about 10,000 units on it and uh, they applied for it. So it's just, you know, you just got to have a bit of luck, but you got to know where it could potentially be an option. And if you've got a large block and you can, you know, put it through as a mixed use setup, you know, all of a sudden those types of uh, rezonings might be plausible. Mm. Well, a lot of Alexandria is all rezoned commercial where I know one, one of the big blocks out there was how like one of the big printers that used to print all the newspapers, that was just a huge, I don't know, hundreds of acres of commercial space, which is now just Unitville, right? Like, yeah. So that's, that's how you make your big money, right? That's generally what they turn into units. Yeah. So that's normally urban sprawl sort of meeting it and coming in and infrastructure and all this sort of stuff yep. happening. And I don't know how exactly they get around a lot of it, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the mixed use would be one of those because they're still retaining a commercial component and, you know, the rest is, you know, up in the air residential. You can also make money just from changing the use of a commercial. So a lot of those industrial complexes that have like a certain percentage office space, they might have 30% office to 70% warehouse space. If office rates are going much higher than the industrial space, you're going to convert more of that. Yeah. Into office. And I guess that's sort of value-adding techniques. And we'll touch on it in a moment, but the sort of concept in Resinal, and apologize for referencing back to Resi, but I know a lot of our listeners are sort of in that Resi headspace looking to expand in commercial. One of the strategies, uh, Steve, is to buy a first property well, hold it for a little while, realize some equity increase, pull the original deposit out, plus any upside benefit you've had through growth, recycle the money, buy the next one, buy the next one, buy the next one. Does the same apply in commercial property? Same concept exactly applies, but you get to accelerate because you've also got the cash flow adding to that deposit for the next one as well. Okay. So because you're not paying what you mentioned beforehand, you're not paying all the sort of outgoings and stuff. So, you know, like council rates and all that sort of stuff is paid for by the tenant or 
power, electricity, that sort of stuff. So you're doubling down, you're chucking more cash into it, and hopefully you've bought growth assets. So how quickly could you move using that same strategy in commercial versus what you could in residential? The benefit of commercial is you've actually got an increased serviceability because you've got that cash flow, whereas you can't just keep going out and buying residential properties that are neutrally geared because at some point the banks are going to say no. But by having a highly cash flow positive property portfolio, you can actually keep moving forward with the commercial purchases. I did a property plan for a client a couple of weeks ago where we just bought one $900,000 property. And just from the cash flow from that, plus the capital growth through rental increases, they ended up having a $5 million portfolio with 150 grand passive income in 10 years from doing nothing besides leveraging those properties. So you've done that plan in retrospect to them doing that work or is that a plan for the future? Plan for the future, but I have had clients from four years ago that have got halfway there. Okay. And have they just sort of started talking to you and you've gone, oh, this is what you've achieved or have they deliberately gone out and done that? I put the plans in place more just to show what is achievable in terms of cash flows and what portfolio size you need. Mm. They're very fluid when it comes down to it because you don't know what personal circumstances might change. They might have kids, serviceability might change. You don't know the performance of the asset. So it's more illustrative, but it just shows you can actually grow a really big passive income quite quickly. Did you make this sort of visualization available so people can actually see how it works, Scott? Is that something you guys do? Yeah, we'll put that on the website. Yeah, I think people will benefit from that. So I'm a visual sort of person. So you can actually sit there and work out how this thing I guess it probably has its own momentum, right? Like once it sort of starts snowballing. On on our website, we have a calculator to show how you can pay down a commercial within 10 years. So Mm. they can have a play with that. And then you just magnify it. But um, yeah, we'll add my spreadsheets on for the property. Okay. I think that'd be really valuable. So we spoke a little bit about how to add value to a property. One might be to shift it, if you can, from a you know, um, office to industrial pretty quickly. How else can you add value, Scott? So one of my favorite ones is targeting areas where there's good yields, which I know because we look at the nationwide market, it's too good for that area. Mm. So an example, this is one I actually personally bought into. We did a, a syndicate purchase. We bought an 8.7% net returning shopping center in ACT, Canberra. Now we just got it valued at a 6.1 net yield. So it's gone up about $4 million. No, it was just under $7 million asset. And they valued it on the yield. Yeah, because there's been a big yield compression there. Mm. So 8.7, this is where it's a little bit hard to visualize, but 8.7 for Canberra is too good. We knew it at the time. Everything else was selling at sevens. But the market's squeezed since then. So this is what we do for almost every single client purchase we do. We want to get a real nice initial high yield because there's room for it to squeeze lower. And that's almost like from a macro level, the easiest way to value add. Because if you can buy a really high yielding investment, there's room for it to grow and still be worth money to someone buying down the track. You know, if you buy a 7% net yield in Brisbane or Canberra or um, Perth or even Adelaide, that's still a good deal if it was sold at a 5.5% net yield because Melbourne and Sydney are at threes. Hmm. So I see there's just... There's room for it to grow. And if you've got a good asset, the yield versus the current interest rates is too good. So to summarize that, buying a high yield in an area where it's a little bit, I guess it shouldn't be that high. Like in residential, high yielding areas tend to resemble a kind of a poor quality, lower socio-demographic area, not in commercial. So it's a way of sort of buying under market value in a way. Okay. Steve, anything to add to that? That's pretty, yeah, that's a good concept. One of, one of the points is to value add is actually, surprise me, just raise the rent. So if you buy a property and it's actually under rented and you bump up the rent 15%, you've just got instant capital growth because the cap rate of that area is going to remain the same. So that's why. Another one which is not normally talk, spoken about is actually lowering the rent can actually give you an increased capital gain. And the way you do that is 
you might actually have a property where they're on a two by two year lease, but you say, look, I'm going to give you a 5% discount if you sign a five, seven, 10 year lease. And then even though you're dropping the rent, basically stuff all, mm. it becomes really lucrative to new buyers. Is it harder though to change the rental profile of a property considering the the sort of legal rig around it all? I know on a resi property, you can just go, oh, look, your rent's gone up 10 bucks do it and they're either renewing or whatever, six months, 12 months. Is it that easy in commercial? At the end of a lease option, it's everything's negotiable on a lease. Mm. Every facet of a lease, you can negotiate with the tenant. Okay. So I guess some of the secret in buying a good commercial asset is to buy it at the point in time. So if it's got a really long lease, that might be a good thing. If it's got a really short lease, that might be a really good thing. But if it's got a really short lease, that might also be a really bad thing. So how do you get your timing right, Scott? Look, you just got to do your due diligence on the tenants. So if it's mm. a short lease, and we do this almost weekly at Rethink Investing, we buy a, a short lease but renegotiate the lease in a just before it settles. So to do that, we need to understand if the tenant wants to stay. And if we call them up and they're already open to discussions, then yes, we'll put it under contract, renegotiate the lease. We've got to get permission from the landlord, yeah. but they're happy to do it because it helps their sale. And uh, you just got to make sure it's a secure contract that they can't change the price on you or anything like that. Because as soon as you renegotiate the lease, it's worth more. So can you make a contract conditional to you getting the lease re-signed? Yes. Yeah. Does, that, does this happen often? At the moment, yeah. yeah. Probably uh, 50% of the time at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very common. And I guess we've got agents scouting them these types of deals for us. So mm. they don't just sit everywhere like, you know, ready for the first person on the internet to pick up. We ask for this stuff and we search for it and you know we'll work with the vendor to basically get their sale done but we need this condition to make that happen okay you can sometimes make it beneficial for the tenant as well mm. you can say look we're not going to give you rental increases for three years if you take on the next lease yeah and can you do an extension at the point of you know uh, acquisition as well so if someone's on a two-year lease can you say hey look let's turn into a five-year lease now and give them like so, everything is negotiable. You can do whatever you want, essentially. Yeah, that, uh, you can be as creative as you want. It's a little bit hard when there's, I guess, you're not within twelve months of an expired lease because okay. the fixed lease, especially if it's not you know, the tenant and owner are not related, because the tenant's not going to bend their back to change much for you. No, you know? but, but if it, you incentivize them, though, like what you were saying, that's how you can do it. Yeah. So you can turn a one year into a five years. And, just- and to do it, you just get the lawyers in the room together, and they can sort it out. You know, mm-hmm. we have the numbers we want to hit. We'll work. You know, we'll just do it all legally above board and you've got to give it a little bit to get it back, you know, yeah. a bit back. So a lot of tenants want to stay. They don't want to be kicked out at the end of the lease term, so they are actually open to negotiations. Yeah. Nice. Well, I think a couple of ground there, gents. I've really enjoyed that. You know, it's good to go from talking about specific asset classes uh, recently, Scott, into putting the asset classes aside and talking about how the numbers work. So I think a lot of our listeners will probably be scratching their heads going, I got about 50% of that and the other 50%. So go back and listen to this again. But if you've got any questions, what do they do? Like you guys are happy to talk about any of this stuff at any time. Yeah, reach yeah. out to just visit our website, rethinkinvesting.com.au or just Google Rethink Investing. It'll come up the top and shoot us some questions. Like we'd love some feedback on what to talk about in the next episode. We are going to get some guests, some clients that have bought properties, you know, big purchases, little purchases. So just tell us what you want to hear and we'll speak about it. Excellent. And uh, Steve, was that a good experience for you, mate? Or yeah, it's good to be here. Come back again at some point? Hopefully, yeah, if you yeah, have me back. <laughs> nice one. Well, I hope you uh, enjoyed that, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. That's uh, episode four of Inside Commercial Property with Rethink Investing. We'll see you again next time. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.